Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson, and this is a public service announcement about how awesome the Handbook 217, particularly oh, yes, Schedule F is, time. and it needs to be... Bite your tongue. <laughs> I actually got a, a a question the other day from somebody that brought that up, and then you're giving me a hard time. Is they said we're we're required by contract, and this government agency is requiring us to use two seventeen uh, version F, I think it is, which was the last version that was published, and it was rescinded. And actually, I think some government agencies even said thou shalt not use this for, at, at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't check whether they were work, working with one of those agencies, but for whatever reason, it got into their contract and there was, they were told that they had to create a 217 reliability prediction um, <clears throat> in order to quantify the reliability, which is a whole problem in itself, of their product. <clears throat> and they had a, a goal that um, of an MTBF goal that they were supposed to get to. And the parts count prediction uh, for all kinds of reasons um, was one third of the goal. And so I said, well, you're not using this to improve your design. He says, well, we have to, because that's the method they want to use to measure it. So we are deliberately taking out what we know are reliable components and putting in less reliable components that are harder to do maintenance on and everything else, because in the numbers game of 217, it improves the the output of it. Oh God. <laughs> it's like, please don't do that. And and they were asking, so do you know any tricks to get 217 to get us a number that probably reflects the real value that we have, or at least fictitiously make it meet the goal so they get off our backs? And I'm like, uh nope. no. No, it's a random number generator. Just put in random numbers. Um, and I thought of a company that I I really didn't like working with a whole lot, but they, they were a good team of engineers and they had one person in, in the team that did nothing but 217 predictions. And this was years and years ago when 217 was actually uh, legal. <laughs> That's one way to say it. <laughs> and not useful. I just said legal uh, to use in contracts. And they... Um, and he knew every trick, you know, change this or set that setting and quality this and all these other things. And it, and I don't play with it enough to know all of the, you know, viable switches and turns and details of what you can manipulate in a meaningful way to get whatever you want. And it would be a waste of time for me to fill it out for him just because it's a condition of their sale. The hard part was, is that they were actually changing their design based on the 217 and knowingly doing it that make it their product less reliable but that's it speaks to a larger problem is the procurement organization whatever or these contractors are saying oh we got to deal with the reliability oh let's do two seven you know they just pull out a boilerplate from 25 years ago and go that'll work and i don't know why that still exists right i mean we do don't we it's just 
it's just more of a psychological problem than a, an engineering problem. Mm-hmm. But um, just to clarify, for people who've never heard of Mill Handbook 217, it's just a bunch of failure rates, essentially MTBFs. An MTBF, mean time to failure, mean time between failure is one over the failure rate. If you only ever have a single number for a failure rate, it implies the failure rate never changes. So the thing never gets old and never gets young, um, which models precious few real world scenarios. So mm. issue, issue number one, um, empty the mill, mill handbook 217F is by definition completely useless for reliability modeling challenges where you have infant mortality and or wear out fire mechanisms, which between the two of them tend to dominate the failures you're going to see. Yeah. Um, but the other issue is that it was the data, so to speak, is always incomplete because it comes from essentially a bunch of old dudes who get at a hotel and say, well, what do you think? Well, you know, I think resistors failed this often. Here's data from the two or three people from companies I was able to get numbers from, and the rest for obvious reasons. A lot of that number, a lot of those numbers are proprietary and not shared. Yeah, there's. I mean, I've talked to a number of folks that were, you know, and even um, Pat O'Connor from O'Connor's Practical Reliability Engineering book. He was a radio repairman in 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 the military early, early on in his life, and he said, "Yeah, we had a form to fill out." And he later learned that those forms were actually used as a tabulation of uh, the reliability of components because they were fixing these radios at the component level, right? Uh, and he says, but we didn't have time to figure out what component was the failure. So we do, uh, we replaced the 10 most likely subs, you know, suspects and record kind of random things because it was paperwork. Nobody ever checked it. Nobody looked at uh, it. So he says, I know firsthand that the data that they were using was just pretty much random. not reflecting reality at all and then there's the legal stuff and we don't want to admit that we're failing this and then over time those radios became you know the whole circuit board we replaced and so the the data guys were saying well we're not going to list every circuit board for every product that's out there in the database, but that circuit board had 15 capacitors and four of this and six of those so they'll we'll consider them all failed Okay. And yeah, the trouble with getting good data, and I talked to guys at Telcordia and a handful of these other places, is that they really struggled getting good data. So even when F came out, the data in it was already old. It was usually from military systems that were required to report it with technicians like that weren't paid to get really good data there. And that was the best that was available at the time. Now there's all kinds of other people are saying, well, we get vendor data. There's all these, uh, um, was it Relics? I think they got bought and there's somebody else now, but they would work with vendors to gather what they did. And I said, well, wait a second. I just talked to that vendor and I asked them where they get their data. And they said, well, we used the 217G or a D for it because it was closest to description to our current product. It's 35 years old and you have a brand new technology, all this great ability to control variability and all this stuff. Is your product that bad? Well, we didn't want to spend money to go figure out a better number. Right. (laughs) And that's the real issue here is people just don't want to invest 
their critical thinking capacity to understand the reliability of their stuff. That's all it is. That we there is this cultural, psychological desire to have a number and then move on. Yep. And that then trumps good design. In fact, it retards good design the way we're describing where a a contractor is now obligated to design a less reliable product knowingly, deliberately, because the number from the contract mandated oracle of numbers will give you a better number for the less the less uh, reliable product. And that's just crazy. That's the process coming to coming to play and ruin lives. Yeah. So I mean Mill Handbook 217 is extraordinarily useful. It one small sliver of production. And that is way, 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 way back at the very start of production where your product is nothing but a glint in the eye of a design team where you just want to have a rough order of magnitude of parts to see if this is something that your organization or parts, uh, sorry, demand, so to speak, so that your organization can just understand if there is scope for it to be successfully deployed across your organization. That's small sliver of feasibility which, which happens at the very very start and that number needs to be taken with a grain of salt that's really the only um justifiable time you could use something like mill handbook 217 but as soon as you start putting a pencil on paper and saying well we'll have this we'll have this uh you know cable routed over here we'll have 16 it's capacitors like over there we'll yeah. have a bearing over there that's when you actually need to start wondering how your components are actually going to fail um, we all know that Toyota vehicles are more reliable than other brands, but the Mill 217 approach where every bearing lasts exactly the same period of length of time when, or every capacitor will last exactly the same period of time just betrays the fact that Toyota amongst and other companies who take reliability seriously mysteriously are able to get their bearings to last longer. It's because they take it seriously. It's 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 like painting an entire component class of the single brush and we know some bearings are more reliable than others we know some capacitors are more reliable than others we know some compressors are more reliable than others because it's not just the atoms coming together to satisfy the definition of that being a compressor now therefore it is ordained or anointed with this failure rate no it's, it's how it's designed the quality of manufacture all these different things come into play yeah we're at, at, at best the numbers in Mill Handbook 217 can be an indicative value for an entire component technology class, but it doesn't ever come close to characterizing what the actual component reliability characteristics will be if you take reliability seriously. And of course, like, like you say, that's, that was those numbers are 25 plus years old in terms of validity. We know technologies have changed a little bit. Oh, there's technology that don't even exist in there. In the well, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but 25 years ago, we only had horses and buggies, but um, yeah, pretty much no computers and all that good stuff. So it, <laughs> it's pre internet. Oh, how'd they live back then? Well, 25 um, years ago, there was no smartphones, it was at yeah. best the, like in the Nokia 3210 bricks, which were actually quite reliable, but um, way more reliable than the smartphone these days. They lasted a lot longer and a lot more accidental washing machine cycles, um, than, than a smartphone of today will last, yeah. But um, anyway, that's a that's a different conversation. Yeah. No. It, so they the, they were in a dilemma, and I, and they're asking me for how do we you know 
flip this switch or turn that knob or, you know, set quality standards. And they were already doing what they could with that. And I, well, have you tried using vendor data? Well, we can't get it. Um, a lot of the vendors we're working with don't want to talk to us about how reliable their product is. And I said, well, that might be a problem in itself, but that's a different subject. Um, well, how about your field data? You guys have been making this stuff for a long time. How about your own data? How do you, you know, you do the repairs on your own stuff, right? Oh yeah, yeah, we do. But we never kept track of that. Um, okay. We, we need to, we need to talk about that. That's a different conversation. <laughs> you know, you can't, in the, the, the organization that contracted him for it and says, where'd you come up with this number? If you know, we have 10 years of experience running this parts and here's our, our data and we're the only ones doing the repairs on it. And it's hard to argue with that, that they have right. real data or closer to real data than anybody else. And oh, now we never paid attention to that. Um, and it says, well, you know, well, how do you actually know if your product's reliable or not? This is, we don't, and then they asked, well, can you help us create a reliability program? And I'm like, well, I think, and they said, well, we got to solve this problem first. And I'm like, all right, great. Here's, um, and, I, and the last ditch I had was, well, could you just make it redundant, make two smaller systems and make them redundant and, and you know, bank on that. And we did a quick calculation and goes, oh, that might work. So they're going to restart their design and do something completely different. And I, Okay, <laughs> you know, because one simpler system um, has fewer parts. So that, and the logic was the fewer parts means that there's the 17 number will give you a better number, even though in and of itself, it's unlikely to operate for the duration because of the loads they were using and all the other stuff. And they knew that from the way their product works. But if we have two of them and then sell them a third one as a spare, um, we could make money and they can get the T17 number they want and get the functionality that they need. But now they have to buy three systems for every one they wanted. And so I don't know how far they'll go with that, but it was like, yeah. just because they want to do T17. And not, and it wasn't this company that wanted to do it. It was, that it was required. And it's, you know, it's like, well, what do you do if it's not required? Well, we don't pay attention to it at all. We just create as good of our product as we can. And, mm -hmm. but you know, how do you do that? And this is, well, we put the parts on a board and ship it. You know, <laughs> they didn't say that, but it was, it was like, oh, okay. It's, yeah. And they asked, so how do we create a reliability plan that, that would work? And I says, read my book. Here you go. Here's the, here's the link. <laughs> go buy this. Uh, yeah. The, the issue was, deeper than just they were required to use T17. And, and that, if they had a really solid reliability program and they had really good products and they knew it and all those kinds of things, that, that's a different starting point. Uh, but they were in such a deep hole that I was like, you know, good luck. <laughs> Have a good day. Yeah, I think it, it comes, one of the issues that also comes back um, to is that uh, you, I, I keep talking to let's call it customer organizations who just complain about the reliability that's they're getting from their suppliers or contractors. It's just mm -hmm. they, we, we contract them to, to, to build us something reliable and they just never do. And the, the problem with that is that um, automatically you set up a paradigm where 
the root cause of your problem lies in someone else's organization. And if that's the case, then you can't do anything about it. It's an environmental factor as far as you you're, you you need to uh, treat it. I mean, yeah. if, if no matter what you do, your suppliers and customers, uh, suppliers and contractors, I should say, are going to give you unreliable stuff, then don't complain about it. It's just the world we live in. You need to deal with it. But in the in the practice, it's just so it's just amazing how some companies who have just as many suppliers and contractors as anybody else, for whatever reason, year in year out, tend to produce reliable stuff. I mean, we know there are reliable cars out there. Ninety percent of the stuff is suppliers, you know, supply yeah. chain network components. It's not yeah. like Toyota is individually manufacturing every single piece. No, they're not doing bearings. The bearing manufacturers are. Um, just amazing how those organizations somehow manage to make it happen. And the big, the one key difference is, is that organizations like Toyota, I know I'm harping on them a fair bit, they take liability seriously and don't outsource critical thinking through a contract and say, okay, you guys make sure it's reliable and we'll just sit over here and we'll we'll, we'll uh, tell you if we like it or not. They are actually actively involved. They They work hard with their suppliers and they, um, it, it can be challenging being a, a supplier to a Japanese car manufacturer, but there's plenty of there's there's plenty of stories about how suppliers who work with these companies who take it seriously, when they perform and when they take it, when the suppliers make them seriously, then the, those companies which you know push them to to improve the, their quality and reliability reward them with bigger contract and higher prices. And I think military customers are a great example where you say, just pay them to make it reliable. Why is it never reliable? Mainly because you insert these ridiculous requirements about mill standards 217F. It must have a Formica and concords mill standard 1629. And because you have forgotten how to make reliable stuff, the only thing you bang on about at every con- contractual meeting is budget, schedule, is the report correctly formatted? Did you answer our questions that our lawyers sent um, via, you know, blah, 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 blah. And if that's yeah. all you talk about, then that's all the contractor and suppliers are going to focus on at those meetings as opposed to making reliable stuff. Yeah. It's always that the suppliers and contractors are always a reflection of the relationship the customer establishes. And unfortunately, that means for some, at least, that customers need to actually learn about the technologies they're asking suppliers to manufacture understand the likely vital few and actually perhaps even give them some ideas about what they think the likely issues will be and then start the conversation. Yeah, no, totally agree. Uh, one other thing I ran into is the customer said, you know, it, I just, I, it was a product I worked on years and years ago. It was a military contract and they flew me all the way to their tier one and the military representatives were there and everybody else was there and they're saying that your product is the least reliable on this larger system and it's causing us to abort missions and stuff like that you have to fix it and i said well all the data you provided is that they're 50 percent better than your requirement and i'll just random number coming to mind i don't remember what the actual numbers were but let's say it's five thousand hours mtbf which is the only thing they wanted to talk about and mm-hmm. i said all of the data, all the evidence, everything, even your own reports showed at 7,500 hours MTBF, which is technically above the criteria you required. So why is this a problem? He says, well, it's less reliable than anything else on the aircraft. 
Okay, I understand that. It's a tall pole in the tent, right? You want to fix it. Um, well, what do you think that requirement actually means? And he says, well, we, fec- we I think it means that there will be no failures for the 5,000 hours. Uh, and we yeah. have failures <laughs> before that. And I'm like, oh, okay. Let me, let me, I grab, and it was a, you know, a chalkboard in the room. So I actually grabbed a piece of chalk and wrote it out and said, this is what this means. This is what you've asked for. This is how many failures you can expect. You're not getting that many. And they all were, you know, gobsmocked, you know, they're just looking at me like what? And, and then luckily it turned out that I pulled out the, well, you can do redundancy, right? You know, how about you take a spare with you on the, on the, on the mission and when it comes out, you don't have to spend two hours scrambling somebody else to get in position. You can swap it out and keep going. And that'll change your availability, which you really are after from this to this. And they all, uh, and I got a nice lunch from the vendor and they paid my bill, but it was like, really? There's a whole room yeah. of really, really, really smart people. And you couldn't figure this out. That yeah, just blew me away. Well, satellite industry, Mike. We've had several conversations about that. Yeah, They're very similar. Yeah, smart. It's quite, quite literally, rocket scientists. Yeah, just cannot understand. Anyway, yeah, no. So it goes. But anyway, that was a, one brief conversation I had this week, and I was like, oh my god, that, why are we? Why? And I and I even asked them at one point, just. And you called me for help with MTBF and parts count prediction. Don't you know who I am? And he goes, that's why uh-huh. I called you. And I says, well, don't do it. And I says, what'd you expect me to tell you? But anyway, so if, if you're out there listening and you're stuck having to use 217, please figure out a workaround or another way to do it, or just get out of that or go fire your contracting company, part of your company, or just stop the silliness. Uh, if you need some, if you have some ideas of how to help, you know, one of these situations, you've successfully made it work. I'd love to hear the success stories because that's, that's just uplifting. There's, there's chance for hope in our society if that happens. But the idea is, is that, you know, if, if you got a question or thought of that, or if you'd like to chat with this topic or any other topic, give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. And, and usually those make it a, a way as a, some part of that conversation might even make it into an interesting podcast. So let us know. Head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. A couple of ways you can get in touch with us. Or you can hit uh, find Chris or I or the other hosts of the show on LinkedIn or on our about pages. So plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. So I, I just... I think I have a copy of 217 somewhere in my hard drive. I think I'm going to delete it just for fun. Just well, you, or you could print it out and symbolically use it as kindling in a fire. Yeah, I live in a fire prone z- region. I think my neighbors would be upset with that. You know, yeah, don't do that. that. Yeah. No. <laughs> Thanks for talking me off the ledge there, Chris. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough, Fred. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you soon, Chris. Take care. Cheers, Fred. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show please let us know you can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on itunes